Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Or a great thing. It would be great. Um, how many of you uh, watched at any point in your life, maybe like grew up at any point with Wheel of Fortune? Little Pat Sajak, Vanna White. Oh, I love that show so much. Uh, do you know how long Pat Sajak has been? Yeah, it's like 35 plus years. I Normally, I would give you that information. I don't know. I just know it's a long, long time. Pat Sajak has been doing that role for a very long time. So uh, we actually have a picture up here. This was an actual Wheel of Fortune game. And it was, um, I hope we do. Uh, we had, like, they just had one letter left. Did anyone know about this or heard this? They, they rolled, they spun again, and then they asked for the letter K and lost. Oh! But wouldn't that have made it so much better if it was a streetcar naked desire? Um, so imagine you're playing the game and you, you don't think K. You know M, Okay. And you answer, you're like a streetcar named Desire. You like enunciate, you nail it. And Pat Sajak says, oh, I'm so sorry. You failed to hit your buzzer ahead of time, and you didn't answer in the form of a question. I moved on. You would be like, I don't think I can flip this wheel over, but I'm going to try, because those are the rules of Jeopardy, right? This is not Jeopardy, this is Wheel of Fortune. And I don't know why, but I was thinking about this hypothetical in my mind. It made me irrationally angry, thinking <laughs> of Pat Sajak saying that. Like, there's other things that I should be way more outraged about. But that particular thing is like, you can't do that. Like, I just tapped into all the five-year-old Kurt, like, deep sense of justice. Like, you're cheating. That's not how the game works. You can't do that. And what's interesting about that is we all have that in some aspect, whether in our work or in our leisure activities, there's like certain rules that govern it. And you're like, I don't know, it's not that important until someone breaks one. And then you're like, that's not how it works. You're ruining it. And one of the things that's interesting is nothing kind of gets people, more people's ire and passion like the Bible and biblical interpretation. If you've ever heard someone say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard that? Ooh, it's a fascinating statement. And basically, what's kind of rolled into that is a bunch of assumptions about the Bible and how you're supposed to read the Bible. And this whole message series that we started last week and we're continuing this week called Revisiting Paul is there's a lot of people that, for different reasons, have said, I'm not going to read Paul, or they'll be talking about Jesus or the Bible, but at some point they'll be like, yeah, and you know, Paul says this, but we don't really listen to Paul. And after a while, I'm like, I don't think that's healthy or good. We can't continue to just not listen to someone who wrote a majority of the New Testament. Instead, what I think we should actually lean into those areas that make us most uncomfortable And we should say, well, what is being said here? What's going on here? Because what I found in life as just a general rule is when you avoid the things that are uncomfortable or you avoid the things that are hard, that's where all the learning's at. 
That's where all the interesting stuff is, is the difficulties, the hardships. Most people don't sit around a campfire or a living room and tell the stories about when things went right and perfect and they nailed it. If you do, stop it, right? (laughs) Every movie you watch is a movie that's talking about ultimately that something goes wrong, something goes bad. I remember my my son is eight and my younger son is, is almost six. And we're talking about a movie and we're like, hey, at the beginning of this movie, like, someone dies. And he's like, oh, I know. Something has to go wrong first. <laughs> and he's right. When something goes wrong, that causes us to lean in and says, well, what's going on here? And if we constantly lean away, we miss all these things that we can learn from. So one of the reasons why we're, we're doing this, and I'll talk for a second what we're doing today, is we really want to see what is Paul saying and what's going on. And so to do that, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of Paul's own writings and the way that Paul would have interacted with the Torah, or what we would call the Old Testament. Because as we talked about last week, Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul's father was a Pharisee, according to kind of classical tradition, that this was the relationship that Paul had. And Pharisees, in the time of Jesus believed so much in like the Ten Commandments and holding on to the law that they created hundreds of laws to keep you from even getting close to breaking the Ten Commandments. Meaning, these weren't people that didn't take the Torah, didn't take their sacred scripture seriously. Paul took it incredibly seriously. But in our culture and world today, when we say someone takes the Bible seriously, we usually slide a couple of things in there, maybe unknowingly. So in the statement, the Bible says that I believe that that settles it. A couple of things that that brings about is that the Bible is infallible, meaning the Bible is always true. The Bible uh, is always kind of there and has like this true thing that it's trying to say. And linked to that is the Bible is inerrant, meaning it contains no errors. Everything in the Bible is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And the reason why we say that is because we're trying to elevate the significance of the Bible. We, what, we're, what, what we don't actually ever talk about, but what we believe is like you wouldn't read something and believe something that contains some errors, right? Okay, here's a question for you really like Bible nerds. How did Judas die? He hung himself in one version. In another version, he used the 30 pieces of silver he got for selling out Jesus, bought a plot of land, tripped, fell, his bowels opened up, and he bled out. So what do you do with that? If the Bible's inerrant, it it contains no errors, usually what biblical scholars would do is they'll combine the stories. He bought a plot of land to hang himself. He hung himself on a tree on the land. The rope broke. He fell opened up his guts. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are like, yeah, I've heard that. That sounds logical, reasonable. And the reason why we feel the need to do all these gymnastics is because if we can't make those stories fit, then we have to throw the whole thing out. I would say, what? That's crazy. They can actually be two different stories and two different tellings, but ultimately what do they have in common is more interesting than what's different about them. They're painting a story of incredible regret. They're painting a picture of 
these kind of consequences and things and what takes over you when you betray someone or you step into that. And you can miss that story if you're doing all these gymnastics to make these things go together. And what I want to do is let's look at some of the different things that, that Paul did. And if you're interested in kind of where this comes from, there's a great biblical scholar named Pete Enns. And he wrote a great article that talks about this. He kind of goes through, these are the things that Paul does with the Bible. I'm pulling exactly from that. Because I think it's helpful to look and say, what rules did Paul follow about how he viewed the sacred scriptures? Because that should actually help us and inform how we would interpret his writings. That makes sense? Using the Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy. Paul was playing Wheel of Fortune. If we impose Jeopardy rules on it, we're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff. And we actually might get sidetracked and rabbit trailed into areas that Paul would be like, what, wait, what? Which, I mean, this is another fascinating thing. You have the sacred scriptures that Paul read in the Torah, and then a lot of what we've included of Paul are letters that he wrote. If you had told Paul, a Pharisee and son of a Pharisee, hey, one day we're going to put your letters alongside the Torah, Paul would have freaked out. That doesn't mean that we don't read them. That doesn't mean that they don't have incredible truth and things in them. But we should be aware that Paul wasn't sitting down going, yep, sacred scriptures, I'm penning them now. He was writing letters. And if you interpret them as sacred scriptures that he very carefully put together to stand alongside the Torah, you're going to miss the truth and the revelation that's there. And when you instead say, this is a letter he's writing sometimes to particular people and sometimes to large groups of people. Right? You with me? Oh, good. I didn't say any no's. If I, if I had, I would have crumpled. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a passage first. If you brought your Bible with you, you have it on a device, I encourage you to read along because we're going to look at a couple of verses, but I think it's always helpful to kind of read some of the verses ahead and after to kind of get a little bit more of the context. We're going to look first at Romans 9, verses 23 through 26. This is what Paul writes. He says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Verses 25 and 26. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the, in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So Paul's writing this whole thing, and he's saying, ultimately, which, again, this is so huge, we need to really get in touch in the New Testament, these catac- a lot of times paradigm shifts that happen over and over again. A lot of times we think of the Bible as like this very stuck, like this is the rules, this is the way it is forever. And that's not how it actually worked for real living people. As they were seeking to follow after Jesus and move with this, they were having active real debates on is this just for the Jews or is this Jews and the Gentiles? And if it's for the Jews and the Gentiles, do we have to circumcise the Gentiles? Which is a bummer deal for older Gentiles, right? Do we have to circumcise them first so that they can be a part of our Christian crew? And if they're a part of the Christian crew, are we following Jewish dietary laws when we all eat together? These were like big, big debates. And as Paul is writing this, what he's saying is like, no, 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 this whole thing that God's been doing the entire time, what if it has always been for Jews and Gentiles? Pick your category that you want to put on it. 
And God has always been like, yep, them. It's always for them. And then he quotes Hosea, which is a verse in the Torah, in the, in the Old Testament, and say, so we want to look at that in its context and say, what was Hosea saying? Hosea 1, 8 through 10. It's telling this story about Hosea, and he married this woman named Gomer, um, which you don't see on top, like, hot baby names. I don't know why. We, should, we need more Gomers. Um, after she had weaned Lo-Rumamah, Gomer had another son. The Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So it's kind of a brutal story. God says to Hosea, go and marry this woman. They have kids, both of the kids, they give these names, not God's people. And God says, but ultimately, in the place where you were called not my people, you are ultimately my children. So, we kind of understand that in this context, God is talking to Israelites, Jewish people, and he's talking to them in that context. And he's saying, some of you are not my people, but actually, you are my people. You all belong. That was the text that Paul used to prove that Jews and Gentiles should both be allowed to be together. Do you see... Oh, wait, that's not what Hosea was saying. See, Paul didn't equate Scripture one-to-one. Paul wasn't pulling out this story of Jews and Gentiles being brought into the same thing to illustrate Jews and Gentiles should be together. He actually used a story where he's just talking about Jewish people. So what's interesting about that is that we would say any biblical scholar today who believed in biblical inerrancy you would be called out for doing that. I don't get to use a story from the Bible that doesn't apply to that thing and just apply it to a new thing. And yet, that's exactly what Paul just did. Interesting. Let's hold on to that. Maybe don't walk out yet. Just hold on to that, okay? Next thing that we want to look at, this is in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, verses 10. I mean, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank them from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Took a dark turn at the end there, right? You following along? What's interesting there is, especially that line says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. If you're familiar with the story that that Paul is referencing here, he's talking about in the Old Testament, Moses goes to the burning bush, let my people go, Charlton Heston, leads them out into the wilderness. When Moses leads them into the wilderness, they don't have water. We just took a whole bunch of people to the desert. So God performs a miracle at the beginning of that story where he strikes a rock and water flows and they drink freely. Forty years in the wilderness, towards the end of the story, God does it again. Out of a rock, hits the rock, and water flows and the people drink. There became this story among kind of Jewish tradition that that rock that that Moses struck at the beginning 
followed the Israelite people all throughout the wilderness, and it's the same rock at the end of the story. Now, you won't find that in the Bible. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the rock rolled and followed the Israelite people all the way through. But what's interesting about this is that Paul is utilizing that imagery. I don't think Paul is necessarily saying that it is or isn't, but he says the rock that accompanied them to point to what? This was Jesus. Jesus was a part of them even as far back as this part of the story. In our earliest ancestors, coming back to Moses setting the people free, Jesus was present and with them, like the water that was sustaining them through the desert. Interesting. Let's look at another story. This is in Galatians 3, verses 19 and 20. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So that little line there, the law was given through angels. This can feel a little like ticky-tacky and getting in there, but if you look at the story of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai, you won't find any mention of angels. Angels aren't present at any point. It's God and Moses. This is a direct kind of reference. And you kind of even see this here where it says that God needs no mediator. And yet Paul says angels, given through angels. In the same way today, anyone who believes in kind of this certain way of reading the Bible, I couldn't just throw extra characters into biblical stories. I couldn't teach on something and say, yeah, you know, at the nativity where it had all the angels and all the shepherds and then later the wise men came and Elijah, he was there. You'd be like, what now? (laughs) I've been to live nativities. There's no Elijah. You don't get to add characters to stories and yet this is what Paul is doing here. And Paul is kind of referencing this tradition. See, Paul added to Scripture The scripture that existed, Paul adds to it. Not in significant ways, not in ways that change the context, but Paul doesn't seem to later say, oh my gosh, hey, that one time I referenced angels, my bad, I did not mean to add angels. We all know there weren't angels there. We've read the story. Paul was getting at a larger truth in something else, and it didn't seem to throw him off to to talk about these things in ways that helped us understand the story, even if it wasn't the way that the story is literally written. Are you with me? Paul seems to have a dynamic relationship with the scripture where he is actually a participant in the scriptures. That he adds to it. He takes from it. That he's a part of the story. It's not just something that he has to translate and lift from one time to the another. Interesting. So far we have Paul didn't equate scriptures one to one and kind of talking about something that was just for the Jews and making about Jews and Gentiles. And now we have Paul kind of adding angels or maybe a rolling water rock. Just a good name for a band. Maybe? Rolling water rock? All right. It's not. I thought about it a second time. All right. Let's go. Last one. Let's go to Romans 10. Romans 10, 5 through 8. Moses writes about this, about the righteousness that is by the law. And I want you to notice the parts that are in quotes here. These are scripture references. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the deep. But what does it say? The word is near you, 
It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So, this can be a little difficult to parse, especially if you take it out of context. What Paul is referring here is he's talking about this difference between law and grace. So how do we orient ourselves as a community? Remember, I talked about you have, you have Jews, you have Gentiles coming together to do this Christianity thing. How do we know we're in? Is it by the laws that we follow? And what he's doing is he's referencing here is, well, is it by the person who does, the, who does these things will live by them, that first quote, and then he says, no, about who will ascend or descend. But what does it say? The word is near you, is in your mouth and your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And Paul really builds on this, this nature of faith and belief, that it's less about doing and performing. It's more about belonging and being a part. Yeah? That's cool. Let's look at the two different scriptures that he pulled these from. So the first one uh, is, about, is in Leviticus 18. It says, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. And here's the part he quoted. For the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So in that first part, he's saying, well, what is it? Is it this idea that who lives by the law? And he's quoting Leviticus. The person who obeys the laws will live by them. And we can all read that and say, yeah, it's saying these laws are for life. If you follow them, you're good. That would be a plus point, and we should govern ourselves by our laws. But that's not where Paul ends. So let's look at Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, this is the second part, he says, Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea and get to it and proclaim to us that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. That was the second part that Paul was using to say, no, it's near you, it's in you. This is the faith experience. In this context right here in Deuteronomy, it's still talking about the law. It's not talking about grace. It's not talking about faith. It's saying, if you follow the laws, it's saying the word, this law, is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart, which would have been very much in this Jewish belief that you write the laws on the tablets of your heart so you would follow them and obey them. So, Paul used two scriptures in the Bible, both talking about obeying the law, played them against each other, and said one's about the law and one's about grace. What? Well, how do you, how do, you do that? There, wouldn't you have pulled another verse? Isn't there somewhere else to go than something that's so obviously still about the law to demonstrate the nature of grace and faith? Paul fudged scripture a bit. Paul would play these scriptural concepts off of each other. Some of you are like, you're doing a good job of making the Bible completely unreliable and untrustable. <laughs> like, if this is what Paul's doing, then why should I listen to it? Why should I engage in it if Paul was doing these things? Does it mean that when we read the Bible, like, there's just nothing to trust? No, no. Ultimately, what's more interesting in this is that if these were the laws, this is telling us about Paul's relationship to the Scriptures. Paul did not have a literal, inerrant relationship to the Scriptures. If he did, he's not worth listening to at all because he violates those laws in these places. He's putting jeopardy on wheel of fortune if he believes in a Bible that is exactly as it's written, you can only interpret it the way it's written. No, Paul doesn't fudge Scripture as he sees fit, 
but he utilizes scripture in different ways to elevate other topics. And I kind of want to walk through those. We talked about those that Paul didn't equate, read scripture, I'm sorry, he didn't equate scripture one to one. Well, why did he do that in that first one? Paul did that so he could include. Do you remember the context? It was about Jewish families, but he used it to say Jews and Gentiles should be together. Why was Paul fudging the scripture? Because he knew and so understood the heart of God throughout the entirety of Scripture was to include and to have people a part of it. That to them, it didn't feel like a violation of Scripture to utilize Scripture to speak to the thing that was at the heart of it the whole time. Paul wasn't fudging Scripture to make his point or to make himself more important. He was using it to include people and say, you belong to. And the second one that Paul added to Scripture, why did he do it? He did it so that he could elevate. And in this, I mean specifically, he's elevating the understanding of who Christ is. When he talks about this rock that's rolling and moving through them, he's elevating the understanding of God's presence with them at all times. When he talks about the angels at the mountain, he's using that story to kind of elevate the significance and the spiritual happening in that moment and what's going on. Paul wasn't playing with these things, again, to prove a point or do something. He was doing it to get to the deeper truth that has been there all along. The last one, that Paul fudged Scripture sometimes. He was doing that so he could give grace. He was doing that to say, stop just applying the law to one another and yourself, that you don't belong, you don't belong, you're not enough. He utilized two Scriptures that were talking about the law to give and expand grace to everyone that was a part of it. See, what we learn in reading the words of Paul is that Paul understood the plot. Paul got the thing that has been happening in Scripture from the very beginning. And he didn't feel limited and he didn't feel caught in having to quote and use the Bible in particular ways to ultimately illustrate that. Because he so knew the heart of God and how it worked all along. And so when we take someone who used something non-literally, and we pull and draw out certain phrases and words and sentences that he spoke or he wrote and to say, this is why you don't belong and this is why you don't deserve grace, come on. That's not what's happening here. That's never what Paul is doing. Paul is utilizing and having an active engagement with Scripture. The biggest thing people will say to you, you're like, hey, do you read the Bible or you should read the Bible? Most people will say, why? It's boring. It's old. It doesn't have any meaning in my life today. Which, if you ziplock it and timestamp it to the time of Jesus and the time before Jesus, you're right. But I believe that if you engage Scripture the way that Paul engaged Scripture, why everyone who wrote Scripture created it to be engaged, to be an active dialogue where you're a part of it, you're going to see there's things that are truer than true at the root of every one of those stories. And it's still worth engaging in. It's still worth going back to because ultimately it is speaking a story over us of inclusion, of grace, and of love. That God created us for the peaceful thriving of all people. That God did not create enemies between us, but God created people that we are supposed to love and join, and we are supposed to participate in them unlocking the nature of who they are the entire time. What's so interesting is that when you put this template on the Bible that it never had for itself, 
And then when you draw it out and you accuse other people who disagree with those beliefs that they're manipulating Scripture. Who's manipulating Scripture? When you keep on saying a 2018 mindset that's been informed more by the last 50 years and by the history of humanity, and you keep on saying this is what the Bible says, that's as much manipulation as anything else. And there's so much in the writings of Paul, there's so much in the heart of Paul that is about inclusion, it's about grace, and it's about elevation. And that is worthy of our reading, that's worthy of being a part of, and that's worthy in participating in. And as we close, I have to admit that when you were patting the baby on the back, I thought I was getting applause. It's all right. It was a big end. I was like rising my voice. That's fine. All right. (laughs) All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, I thank you that when we look at the Bible, God, we can experience freedom. And God, not a freedom to do whatever we want but a freedom to explore, a freedom to play, a freedom to read and dig into the depths of Scripture. God, to pull out your heart. God, to pull out your heart for us individually and your heart for us communally. God, I pray we would hold each other to the standards that Paul held himself to and held the people that he was speaking to, which are you utilizing the Scripture for grace, for inclusion, and for peace? Are you utilizing it for harm and exclusion? God, may we be better at loving. May we be better at seeing and living out your heart, God, than our own agendas. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So would you stand? I want to send you out with a blessing. May you go filled with the realization that there is hope in Scripture. There is hope in God, and there is hope for you and the people around you. May you be agents of grace. May you be agents of elevation. May you be agents of inclusion. Amen and amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.